Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, a large part of your ministry involves apologetics, and Mm -hmm. apologetics can address questions believers and unbelievers have about what the Bible says. That's right. Apologetics is the practice of making rational explanations for things, and it applies to what are so often objections to what the Bible says from unbelievers. But it also applies to questions believers have about what the Bible says. The thing is, no matter how good and thorough of an explanation is presented concerning something recorded in the Bible, the unregenerate heart is not going to accept the truth of the Bible unless the Spirit of God prompts them. Would that be what the passage, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, is talking about when it says they cannot understand because the Word of God is spiritually appraised? Yes. Let's look at that passage you're referring to, Scott. It's in 1 Corinthians 2.14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And, you know, there's another passage in 2 Corinthians that relates to this as well. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Go ahead and read verse 3, Scott. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, Paul is specifically speaking of believing in Jesus Christ for salvation here. However, the blinding taking place in the mind of the unbeliever extends to whatever is revealed by the Spirit of God in the Bible. And there is much in the Bible that the human heart needs help to understand. That's called illumination, right? Exactly. And believers often need illumination, too. But since they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they at least are able to perceive and believe the truth. Of course, that does not mean they always do. But where no amount of logical explanation, that is, apologetics, can ultimately result in the unbeliever's conversion, that takes a work of the Holy Spirit, logical explanations about questions a believer has about the Bible can be very helpful to illuminate, encourage, and grow the believer's faith and confidence in the Bible. So it almost sounds like you're saying apologetics is only effective for believers. Well, it depends on what effect we're talking about. But for salvation, in other words, for the actual effect of being born again, I would say apologetics are ultimately not effective. Now, I must say that is not agreed upon by all Christian scholars or believers by any means. Some would say a person can, by virtue of their own reasoning abilities, come to faith. But what I am convinced of is called presuppositionalism, which is the concept that there is no completely objective vantage point from which a person can see and interpret the Bible or the world without presuppositions. And because an unbeliever denies the true God they know exists, They reason with unbelieving and sinful presuppositions. That sounds like what Romans chapter 1 describes. It does. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
And keep reading, Scott. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So, given what Romans 1 teaches, along with what we read in First and Second Corinthians about the need for spiritual appraisal of the Word of God, the presuppositionalist position is it takes a supernatural work of the Spirit to change the spirit of the unregenerate person to accept God's revelation of himself in his word, which then also extends to so many other things revealed in the Bible. For example, like creation or even other miracles. Yes, those are good examples. The miracle of creation is something many unbelievers deny. But as hard as it is for many believers to grasp this, there are also lots of born-again persons who deny the account of creation as recorded in Genesis 1, or like the account of the flood in Genesis chapters 6 through 9. They believe it doesn't mean what it says, at least literally. And in those cases, I submit, apologetics can be very effective. So in the case of the unbeliever, apologetics can help remove errant presuppositions, not all of them, but shall we say some helping to clear the way for the Spirit of God to illumine their spirit, that they might be born again. And apologetics can help remove errant understandings of believers so that they have a much better knowledge of the truth than before. So, in the case of unbelievers, some of their arguments for discounting the validity of the Bible are also accepted by some true believers— But those believers still accept the truth of the Bible, at least when it comes to the essentials of saving faith. I would say that's exactly right. And in fact, at one point in my Christian life, that would have described me. And I think without us being aware of it, there are misunderstandings all true believers carry around in our minds that probably originate from errant worldly ideas. But hopefully, when those misunderstandings are challenged by God's Word, We are quick to listen and, with the Spirit's help, change our mind and our behavior when needed. So, Dr. Scripture, you just said that you had accepted some of the objections of biblical skeptics earlier in your Christian life. Mm -hmm. And I assume it was various apologetic presentations or studies on your part that changed your mind. I'd be interested in hearing some of those specific examples from your life. Well, that's an excellent idea, Scott. Now, one of the directions I could go would be to talk about scientific evidences that evolutionists cite to claim the Bible is an error. But I want to talk about a different kind of evidence, or perhaps to put it more accurately, answers to questions about the validity of some of the things the Bible presents that would seem to be impossible. And I'm not talking about miracles that naturalists reject out of hand. So, if not miracles, what other things could the Bible present that appear impossible? Well, I was reminded of something just a few days ago that would fit that description. I was doing some study on the creation of man in Genesis 1 and 2, specifically on the revelation that God made male and female, and I read the verses that talk about Adam naming the animals. 
Now, in general, when you hear someone summarize that event, Scott, what do they say? Uh, that man gave names to all the animals? Exactly. Man gave names to all the animals. And so then the skeptic immediately chimes in and says, that's ridiculous. It would take days, even weeks, to give names to all the animals. There are hundreds of thousands of different kinds of animals. It would be impossible in one day. The sixth day, as presented in Genesis 1, for God to first create all the land animals, then to create Adam, then bring all the animals to Adam, and he then names them all, and then create Eve. I mean, even if you accept all the miracles creation required, Adam couldn't name all the animals in that short a period of time. Now, for a person who doesn't believe any of the account of creation, that part of the story is not an issue. It's just another reason they give for discounting what the Bible says. But for the believer, and it was for me at one point, it does present a problem because it logically doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. So what explanation is there? Well, the explanation is in a careful reading of the text in order to discern the precise meaning of what the Bible is saying. One of the strategies commonly used by the critics of the Bible is to misrepresent what the Bible says. And one of the common things that cause questions, even doubts in believers' minds, is inaccurate interpretations of what the Bible says. So, Scott, I introduced this example by asking you to generalize what the passage about Adam naming the animal says. And you replied with what is generally understood. Man gave names to all the animals. But let's look carefully at what Genesis 2, 19 and 20 actually say. And we'll read from the NIV because it expresses clearly the tense of the verbs for us in English. Go ahead and read Genesis 2, 19, Scott. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Then verse 20, so the man gave names to all the animals, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. Wait, I thought you said you were reading from the NIV. Yes. Well, the Bible doesn't say, so man gave names to all the animals. It doesn't? What, what does it say? So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Ah, thanks for catching that, Scott. I did that on purpose. So we see that Scripture does not say man gave names to all the animals. In fact, it clearly indicates a subset of animals named by Adam. And what were they? First, it says, quote-unquote, all the livestock. What animals would that include? Cows, pigs, sheep, goats, you know, the animals man would raise on a farm. And that's relatively a small group of creatures, right? Yep. And secondly, it says, quote-unquote, the birds of the air. Does that have to mean all the birds of the air? That would be a large number of animals. Well, it doesn't say all like it did for the livestock, so I'd say no. It doesn't mean all the birds of the air that God created, just whatever ones God brought to Adam. Very good. And thirdly, it says, quote-unquote, all the beasts of the field. So for this group of animals, it does say all. But notice these are animals called beasts of the field. That's a specific word in Hebrew, which is used to describe agricultural land, land for planting crops and grazing livestock. So there are a number of beasts that live where livestock graze, but not all the beasts of the world. 
what kind of beasts might be included in beasts of the field? Animals like mice or rabbits, maybe gophers or even dogs and cats. <laughs> yes, all those animals might be included in beasts of the field. The point is, all the beasts of the field would not include the large majority of animals God created. I would suggest that the beasts of the field are the animals that man would encounter while working in the field. Now, we don't know how many that might be, but it certainly would be a number that Adam could have named in a short period of time. So, Scott, this was just one example that impacted my understanding of the integrity of the biblical record when I questioned its accuracy years ago. It's a simple explanation for one of the common objections used by skeptics of the Bible to deny its credibility, and therefore deny, according to their desire, anything the Bible says. But what apologetics can do is demonstrate that the Word of God is true, it is believable, it is trustworthy, and a presumption that it's God's Word enables us to come to a proper understanding. And to close then, this in part is what Psalm 19 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, the testimony of the Lord is sure, the precepts of the Lord are right, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And that's not what I say. That's what Scripture says.